0: Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. and welcome back to this next episode of The Mindful Dietitian. I have just finished recording the most wonderful episode with Nicola Salmon, who is the Fat Positive Fertility Coach. So if you're not familiar with Nicola, she's just such a fabulous human being. She is not only a medical physicist, as I found out during the episode, she is also an acupuncturist. She is the Fat Positive Fertility Coach, so she's a coach as well, and she's also an author of the book Fashion Fertile, which was released in 2019. She can be found playing around on Instagram, which she tells me she's on a little bit too often, which I don't believe there is such a thing. And you can find lots of her services for both professionals and for clients as well at her website, which is www.nicolasalmon.co.uk. I really recommend Nicola as somebody who is not only so wise and knowledgeable, but is also incredibly generous. Her ability to uh, pull together not only things like the research, but also inject um, her own lived experience into uh, advocacy spaces and into consultancy as well is just so evident. And you'll uh, just be able to hear her her warmth and the passion that she has for her particular area of expertise, which is... Fat Positive Fertility, of course, um, weaved into this conversation. It was such a pleasure to speak to Nicola, and I really hope you do enjoy this episode. If you're looking for more on The Mindful Dietitian, you can find my website at www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. So unfortunately, I'm feeling so sad because all the live workshops, unfortunately, for 2020 have had to be cancelled. Wow, So sad about that. However, All online services are continuing, including uh, short courses, long courses, including the body image uh, online course that I developed with the wonderful Marcy Evans, who has now been a guest of mine twice on the podcast. So, if you're interested in what Marcy has to say, especially about caring for others uh, sorry, caring for ourselves as we're caring for others uh, this year, 2020, I'm recording this as we're going through COVID 19. uh, So, there's no better time to be listening uh, to marcy than that uh also on the website you'll be able to find out about our facebook group called the mindful dietitian full of wonderful colleagues who are whole, all health at every size and weight inclusive passionate people it's a really incredible space where you can find some really great community um, and an opportunity to find out more about health at every size dietetics and healthcare. Uh, if you're interested in supervision whether that's group or individual supervision uh, that's something that I do personally offer but I've also uh, I also highly recommend people from all over the world so you can find a a list of people who you can seek supervision and consultancy from under the uh, supervision and services tab on the mindful dietitian okay so let's move on to this fantastic conversation with fat positive fertility coach Nicola Salmon Hello, Nicola, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It is such a thrill to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you today.
0: So Nicola, a lot of people will know you from your work as an advocate in fat positive fertility. And what I'm so interested in you sharing, if it feels okay, is how you came to be doing this particular work.
1: Mm, Yeah, I would love to. It's quite a long story, but I'll kind of keep to the cuts and the, the nice little ways that it had. So I was diagnosed myself with PCOS when I was 16, and the doctor told me that I wouldn't be able to have children. So at 16, I didn't really know what to do with that information. I don't really remember feeling particularly traumatized by it, but it was definitely something that impacted my confidence in my body my confidence in choosing relationships, just kind of like myself, who I was. And it became kind of part of my identity as I was this person with PCOS. And obviously kind of, I was told to go on the pill, the oral contraceptive pill um, to quote unquote regulate my cycles. And I was told to lose weight. Those were my kind of two things I had to do in order to cure myself. Um, So I went on my merry way. That was pretty much all the care i got with regards to my pcos and then spent my the rest of my teens and my 20s trying to lose weight so that became who i was you know i was this person in a bigger body um who was trying to lose weight and i tried all the diets you know it's kind of a standard dieting yo-yo dieting story of trying things losing weight gaining weight kind of and it but it was consuming it was all consuming it's you know, I spent all my energy, all my time, all my resources, all my money trying to reach this goal of changing my body shape and my body size. Um, in the meantime, I was on the pill. So I thought my periods had regulated. I didn't really know much about my reproductive system, bar kind of what I learned in high school. So I thought everything was great. I thought that was healthy. Um, and while I was doing this, I was kind of, I went to university, I got a job, I met my to-be husband. Um, and then it was when I was in my first job that I was living in a kind of bit of a dodgy area of London and I actually witnessed this guy get shot outside my flat which was pretty traumatic it was kind of like one of these incidents that you think you always read about and that you think will never happen to you. But you know, I was, I was fine, but I was, I suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was that that led me to getting acupuncture for the very first time. So I tried acupuncture. I tried all this other stuff in the meantime, I tried therapy, I tried, um, antidepressants, but nothing else was helping me. Um, so I just randomly, there was no rhyme or reason to it tried acupuncture and it really helped me. And, um, that's when I started training to be an acupuncturist. So that was kind of like a big kind of turning point in my life of like having never tried it before wanting to train as an acupuncturist. And I did that for four years um, and also trained as a naturopath at the same time And um, because of my own interest, you know, of my own self-interest around my own PCOS and, and fertility and hormones and things like that. That's why I decided to specialize. And that was kind of my first, business as it were in fertility I became a fertility acupuncturist and in the meantime I'd got married I was thinking about starting a family but I was expecting it to be really hard because of what the doctor told me um and you know everything I'd read about fertility everything I'd learned about fertility they're like you know if you're in a bigger body lose weight that's the answer you know like you're gonna struggle you're gonna find it difficult but for me, for both my children, who are four and six now, um, we conceive them both super easily. They were both um, natural conceptions. They were both um, with minimal trying. And even though I still am in a bigger body, I would say kind of like I'm a mid fat and I still have PCOS. I still have super irregular cycles. So that was kind of the first seed that was like, well, OK, if this happened for me, like why is this you know why why was it so easy for me why is it difficult for other people and that's kind of what planted that seed um and then when my first son was kind of eating age so he was like getting to about a year i realized that i didn't want to pass on kind of all the stuff i had around body around food to him i really didn't want him to have problems with food and problems with like saying like oh my god I hate my body and do I look fat and, you know all this kind of internal dialogue that we have around our bodies so that's when I made a promise to myself that I didn't want to diet anymore that I didn't want to weigh myself anymore because I had a very problematic relationship with the scales um and then there was this void there was this like okay well I'm not doing that anymore because I want to protect my children but who am I now like who am I without the weight loss without the dieting without the um good fatty of you know like being someone who needs to is in a bigger body but is supposed to be doing things to make themselves smaller and it was then that i found the health every size movement kind of intuitive eating um i just found this whole other world on instagram of people who are actually happy with their bodies um whatever size they are whatever shape they are and that actually like doing things to support their health but it doesn't involve weight loss and it just blew my mind and I was like this is incredible so then I kind of like dived headfirst, found all these amazing people yourself included and I was just like oh my god this is amazing but the more I read and the more I found out about it the more I realized that the work I was doing with my fertility work and by this point I'd become a fertility coach as well so I trained in coaching I was like but it's so fat phobic like all the stuff around it 's like all about dieting and about removing gluten and sugar and dairy, and I was like, "This is so harmful, and then the whole rhetoric around weight loss I just realized was complete b s and there was like there is no reason why these people cannot get pregnant, and you know I myself am a prime example of how you don't have to lose weight in order to get pregnant and I was like this is this is crazy I felt like I'd like stumbled into this different universe and I was like oh my god like what do I do with this information and I try to find people to like learn from people like resources and I was like there is nothing nobody is talking about this that I can find and I just could not find anything and I was like okay well if nothing else, nobody else is talking about it then I guess I'm gonna have to stand up and start figuring this out and figuring out how I can support these people so yeah so that It's kind of a short, long version, but (laughs) that's how I got here.
0: (laughs) Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that, Nicola. You know, I love the way you, um, you know, you uh, recounted so much of your experience, um, not only your lived experience, but then also your observations of what other people were experiencing too, I'm so curious, if you don't mind, if we loop Mm. back, you know, when you did your naturopathy and your acupuncture degree, what did you learn there about um, fertility and about um, larger bodies and about fat positivity, if anything? Like was that kind of a place where um, it was fairly inclusive or what what was your experience around studying good, bad and everything in between?
1: Mm, It was was really interesting because – it was almost, it was very two-sided. So there was one side um, that was very diet-focused. So there were other people in my college who were training to be nutritionists. Um, and I am aware that a lot of them were suffering from eating disorders. So actually one of my um, lecturers who I then went to see to kind of get some support um, was, 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 partaking and eating disorder behaviours during our oh. session. Oh no which was really, really traumatic. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like it kind of really like, yeah, messed, you know, like it kind of was like, oh my gosh, well if she's doing that and she looks mm. like that, then you know, should I be doing and they, yeah, mm. whole kind of crazy yeah. thoughts going on. Um so there was this one side that was really quite problematic um that I found, especially in the nutrition side of our training. Um But then there were some, I can remember like key moments in my training when I realized that, you know, maybe food wasn't bad. So people talking about, you know, like, okay, well, you know, people introducing to me ideas like, well, you know, how you think about food is just as important as the food you're eating Mm -hmm. and that, Mm -hmm. you know, how you're feeling when you're eating can, you know, can impact like how the food is absorbed and, Mm -hmm. you know kind of really expanded my mind into thinking in different ways and I think training in acupuncture especially gave me the skills to really open up my mind and to think about things in a different framework and to be okay um kind of working against the the norm because in our country in the UK acupuncture still isn't kind of the norm like naturopathy still isn't a normal thing for people to do it's still sometimes seen as like alternative medicine or like a strange thing that maybe doesn't work or is perceived but you know so it's not like accepted into the kind of medical norm so I'm quite used to having conversations with people and like talking to people about like different perspectives and different ways of looking at things which I think was really helpful in like in this work especially.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you have kind of found yourself with the addition of the coaching in a really unique position Mm -hmm. and you were, you know, you mentioned before that you were looking around to see what people were doing, hoping that you would be finding people already doing some work in this space and it was like a a void, I guess. Mm. Um, and, and then, you know, so you made this very, actually very courageous decision to be like, well, if nobody else is doing it, then I guess, then I guess I'll do it. So, I guess I, I, I'm really interested in how you set those wheels in motion because to be somebody who is now regarded as one of the world's leading advocates for fat positivity, especially in health at every size and weight inclusive spaces, especially in our like little crowd, right? Our bubble. Yeah. Our little bubble, our lovely, nice little warm <laughs> bubble. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious what you called upon you know, in, in yourself, you know, what were the skills that you called upon to kind of step into that space? Because I can imagine there might've been a part of you that's like, Oh shit. Like (laughs) there's there's nothing here, (laughs) you know? So I'm so curious about, about that step because you do such great work Nicola, you know, and to be the first is, is a big deal.
1: Mm, I mean, it was, it's definitely not been a smooth curve. There's definitely been, many a month where I've been like, Oh, like, I can't do that. And I've been like, you know, like staying low and trying not not to like stick my head up on the parapet. But I think the first like big lesson for me was when I was pregnant with my first son and I really wanted a home birth and I really, really wanted a water birth. And I was told flat out by my midwives that that was not an option for me because I was in a bigger body and it was the very first time that I remember thinking, well, oh, this is not right. Like I mm. should have access to these options. You know, I'm fit, I'm healthy, like um there's no reason why I cannot, you know, have a mobile birth and have a birth at home. And there's no you know, apart from my BMI, there was no other health indicators that there was anything wrong with my pregnancy. Um so I started to research about information about BMI and water births and um, there was this great website called Big Birthers in the UK that I found that kind of went into all this information about like, well, actually these are safe and you can advocate for your body. And the, I think the, the big thing for me was that they cannot tell you what to do. Like you have the right to decide your own healthcare. And for me, that was just like, oh my gosh, like, I was doing what I was told to do. I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do. I was so used to being the good girl and ticking all the boxes and doing everything right and, you know, doing as I was told. And then I was just told that like, okay, well, you know, they can't tell you that you can't have a home birth. They can only advise and give you recommendations. And then that, for that was such an empowering moment for me that I realized that I had control and responsibility over my own health care. Uh, that I just so I kind of went into an appointment with the head midwife I explained that I this is what I was going to do was all the research to support me and they agreed and I was like I, I yeah I was kind of flabbergasted because I wasn't expecting that so having that experience of knowing that I could make a difference mm. was one of the biggest kind of most confidence boosters in moving forward this is work because I knew that if people were having these conversations that they could change their health outcomes and the way that their healthcare was managed um they're definitely conversations that we shouldn't have to have like obviously the onus was on me and that was just quite a stressful thing to have to go through especially being pregnant um you know it's not an experience that i would want everybody to go through you know i want this to be the norm for everybody and to have all these options available to them but i realized that doing this work could make a difference And the more that I shared my story um, of being in a bigger body and although I didn't experience fertility issues, I did experience um, stigma during my pregnancy in terms of like how I was treated and the options I was given, you know, I realized that that was only kind of magnified in the fertility world. And the more stories I read about it, the more I almost found that I couldn't not do anything because there Mm. were so many people reaching out to me and saying, you know, this is happening to me and this is happening to me. And Um, there were just so many people who were sharing their stories of like just abhorrent experiences they'd had of being shamed and told that they weren't worthy of becoming parents and made to feel guilty and to blame and I just I couldn't not do anything because there were so many people in pain and they needed to feel like they weren't alone and that because because of the stigma around it and because we're made to feel it's our fault that we can't get pregnant people are so much less willing to share about their fertility experiences because they're afraid of getting even more shame and guilt and blame based like kind of put upon them because everybody's going to tell them it's their fault. So it felt really important to make people, to have a space for people to realize that they weren't alone and that there were other people going through this and it's not their fault and they are worthy of becoming parents. And yeah, just that being there. So that was kind of one of the biggest things that definitely helped push me kind of through the difficulties and the the times when it felt too hard and the times because yeah like I definitely had thoughts of like well if I publish my book I've written a book called fat and fertile if I publish that that means that I've got to stay fat and then I had to kind of process this whole thing of like okay well if I stay fat what does that mean you know does that mean Mm -hmm. that I'm never going to be happy because that's the story I've been told and I really had to push through that whole rhetoric of like it's okay if I'm fat for the rest of my life and it's okay that I become this fat positive fertility coach because actually I can be happy in my body. And yeah, a lot of internal growing as well as like pushing through and like creating a business around this as well.
0: Mm. Well, we are so grateful that you did push through Nicola because the, the gifts that you give to the world are just innumerable you know the the way that you have you know really positioned yourself not only as somebody with lived experience but also offering um hope and a space where people can feel heard and witnessed and therefore can build a sense of agency are being able to use their voices in healthcare, um, you know, you mentioned about advocacy in healthcare and and how that is, um, you know, the labour of that is very inequitably on the shoulders of the person uh, receiving healthcare, particularly for those in fat bodies, in larger bodies, um, you know, in bodies that that healthcare providers might be like, oh, this is a little bit tricky for, you know, in whatever way. Um, And I I wonder if you wouldn't mind just speaking to that a little bit because, um, you know, uh, I guess I'm so interested in your thoughts as to how we can... Broaden advocacy efforts so that it doesn't keep being the labour of the individual, but so that we can, you know, really broaden that out to be a conversation around healthcare and that that more healthcare providers are doing the work in order to provide equitable um, and inclusive healthcare for people in all bodies who are looking to, to start families. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I I find that space is kind of, it's tricky because um, we want to be putting the labor where the labor needs to be. And yet it's still the individual doing so much of the work. And I feel funny, not funny. Yeah. Funny. I feel funny about that because it's a lot of work. So I don't know, would you mind speaking to that a little?
1: Yeah, of course. So I think as, as healthcare professionals, we can, Support our audience and our clients, you know, with like writing letters to their doctors, right? You know, supporting them in the best way they can in that way in terms of like almost like preparing the doctors and the other healthcare professionals that they may be seeing, endocrinologists, reproductive endocrinologists, um, gynecologists, you know, preparing them for a conversation that might come up and giving almost giving our Clients the tools beforehand so that they're going in, knowing that the doctor is aware that they are not willing to talk about diets, talk about weight loss, talk about, you know, all these things. But also it kind of like helps to frame the conversation if beforehand, like your dietitian or your nutritionist has written a letter to say, We're already doing work on this, you know, if you're interested, we you can have some more information about what we're doing, but please don't talk to my client about XYZ. Um because setting those boundaries can mean that the conversation that your client then has is much more productive because you can talk about the things that are going to have an impact, you know, like the health promoting behaviors that might be beneficial, um, that have evidence base behind them to support their fertility health. Um, without spending like the first 20 minutes of the appointment having to talk about, okay, well, I want you to lose weight. Well, weight loss doesn't work. Well, have you tried this diet multiple mm. diets so, don't. you know, having Around to have we go that again. conversation again <laughs> And I think, although it's unfortunate, like if it was from a dietitian or somebody else that you're working with obviously has more clout because you're a professional in this field. So I think any support that you can lend to any other professionals that they're seeing with regards to their fertility in terms of like letters, phone calls, emails, um, telephone calls, you know, anything that you can do to support them in that way is, it just takes a lot of that pressure off. And I think that first sentence that first conversation about that is often the hardest bringing it up in the first place is the most difficult so by taking that first step for your client you're almost taking that initial like uphill battle bit off and then once you've done that work for them the the rest of the conversation can often be a bit easier
0: Mm, i love how you explained that thank you so much i think that is really um, you know, empowering for, mm. for dietitians and other health professionals. I think one of the things that um, the dietitians probably in particular amongst allied health or amongst broader health professionals feel quite acutely at times is the existence of the medical and healthcare power structures. Yes. So um, I'm sure you're aware, you know, of, of how things are kind of positioned, but in, even in allied health, like dietitians, we're kind of down the... <laughs> Down the bottom rungs <laughs> unfortunately I've got no idea why we're down there but it's it's kind of how we're positioned and um I think most people listening if you're a dietitian will uh, might recognize you know the good girl syndrome as well mm-hmm. um or the good good person the good person um, kind of syndrome that, that tends to weave its way into dietitians. Um, and certainly, you know, when we too are recipients of being in power structures, I think sometimes that can influence our willingness to be able to step into an advocacy role for our patients and clients, because maybe we are nervous about feeling rejected or about feeling, um, uh, dismissed by other, by perhaps doctors or specialists, because I mean that's quite a common experience for dietitians actually to be ignored or dismissed or kind of um, yeah, it's made very clear where you are on the on the power structure rung of things, I guess you would say. Um, but you know, I really really appreciate what you're saying, Nicola, in the sense that well, even if that does happen, and particularly if the healthcare professional is um, the recipient of a, uh, of a lot of body privilege that we can actually use our, you know, time, energy, and resources for the good of our patients and clients. Mm-hmm. And look, if um, if the specialist makes the decision to not pay attention or to not um, take what we have to offer on board, then we know that we've done the absolute best we can and we have offered ethical healthcare, which is at the end of the day, I mean, I don't, I don't know about everybody listening, but that's why I got into it was to, you know, try and make a contribution to the world in the most ethical way mm-hmm. I could. So... Um, yeah so I just wanted to mention that that I think sometimes because of the way we're positioned sometimes we can get nervous too I don't know do you kind of relate Absolutely. to that in
1: some way Oh yeah I mean as yeah. a coach I think I probably yeah. even better than the <laughs> dietitians right like as an acupuncturist as a naturopath like I do not have much clout at all in the medical world mm-hmm. um, And I actually have to find that sometimes I step back into, like, my old role. So before I became a fertility acupuncturist, I trained as a medical physicist. Bizarre. Oh, really? Wow. I sometimes feel like I have to step back into those shoes of actually, you know, I've got a master's degree in medical physics. And, like, almost trying to, like, like say, you know, I do have some Mm. scientific backgrounds and some evidence-based, you know, research and data. And, you know, it's hard. And I don't want to have to do that, but sometimes mm. I feel like I ought to. But yeah, even if you are dismissed, even if they ignore you, no matter what their reaction to you as a healthcare professional, you have opened that doorway to that conversation already. And it is that very first conversation that is the hardest bit to do. So many people will go into their, into their appointments ready to have this conversation. And it's, it's the wrong time. Like They don't mm. have the emotional energy to even start that conversation and it will just be like, okay, we you to lose weight. And they'll just say, okay. And then they'll leave the, the room mm, in tears. So it's like exhausting. Even start that conversation, even if it feels like you haven't done any good and that they've rejected you and you feel like crap and knowing that you've made that initial starting point on that conversation for that, for your client, that is going to be so worthy, no matter what their response, mm-hmm. um, it's still important. And I think it's very telling from their response to how they treat you as to how they're going to treat your client. Mm-hmm. So you can almost like find another doctor if that's an appropriate thing to be able to do with the, in, in terms of where you are in the healthcare system and the options you have available, you know, the how they treat you is going to be similar to how they treat your clients. Um, but also, yeah, I think it's just really important that you know by taking on some of that emotional load, um, for you, are taking that on for your client and it means that your client doesn't have to experience that. Um, so I feel that, you know, it's almost that you're kind of sharing the labor in terms yeah. of make, meaning that your client isn't going to have as much of a kind of shamed conversation with their, um, healthcare professional that they might without that, your help and assistance.
0: Absolutely. And it, I'm also thinking that, you know um, it it often isn't necessarily just going to be a singular one off conversation with a specialist mm-hmm. you know with a reproductive specialist or an endocrinologist for example, who might be you know the people who um, are sought out for for specialist mm-hmm. treatment around for t- fertility, um, but that remember that that specialist also sees other patients and clients as well, yeah, and that it is absolutely possible that a letter a conversation particularly if there is some repeated contact with that specialist that any kind of learnings or shifts in attitudes beliefs um you know the way that they're treating their their patients and clients could you know that that it could shift across their whole patient patient group really which is i mean Honestly, that's probably what I would be hoping for is it's not just my client that is the recipient of, um, more inclusive, you know, um, care, like ethical, ethical care. It sounds ridiculous just to be asking for ethical care, doesn't it? I mean, even when I say it, I'm like, oh my God, I'm not asking for much here. Um, but, you know, it's a bit ridiculous. But then what, what I'm honestly, what I'm crossing my fingers, crossing everything is that, It's not just going to be my client. It's going to be lots of other people, um, including maybe junior junior specialists who maybe this specialist has contact with. I don't know. Maybe I'm wishing into the void, but that's kind of my hope is that it kind of spreads.
1: It's definitely planting a seed. Planting a seed. And even if they're not ready for that seed to grow, the seed is still there, and I feel that – that they may reflect on that conversation in years to come or, you know, like you don't know when they're going to be ready for that because they're people too. Right. And they have invested as all of us have heavily in diet culture and heavily in this idea that thin people are healthy people that are going to be, you know, less impact on the healthcare system. So I feel that in order for them to like grow that seed and to begin to change how they view people, they have to accept the fact that they may have done harm in Mm -hmm. the past and that is a really hard thing to do i know for me personally it was a really hard thing to do because you know like previously i've given people advice that i would not ever in a million years say to people now but um some people need more time to be able to recognize that they might want to learn more about this you know health at every size and they might want to accept that maybe weight loss isn't the best option for people and you know, I think it's, we've got to give people time and space to do that because for all of us, like it's been a learning experience. None of us were, born, well, we were all born learning this, but then, you know, having years of conditioning, we all unlearning this and making mistakes and doing things wrong and changing our minds. And yeah, I hopefully like, you know, I would love for this to kind of spread like that, but I think giving people grace as well and letting people learn but hopefully learning fast and not harming our clients in the process (laughs) yeah
0: that's right learn a little faster will you (laughs) (laughs) come on quickly quickly i know well that that's it right is that um you know uh, the, the period of time that we might be seeing our clients for, you know, for their um, fertility journey, I guess you would say, is, you know, you're, you're hoping, I guess, that the specialist is learning quickly enough to be able to mm. give your client the care that they really, um, that they have every right to at the end of the day, not that only that they need, but also that they have the right to.
1: And time matters. Like we know that oh, you know, yeah. for people who mm-hmm. want to get pregnant, like the months that people are told to go and lose weight, you know, those, months matter so much more than any potential impact that they could see from the research that shows that weight loss is important like the time that they spend doing that we know that is way more important than anything else that they could be doing in terms of yeah supporting their health with weight loss so it's yeah time is important and getting these people on board and talking to them and having these conversations yeah even if you think it's doing nothing it's definitely planting that seed always
0: Absolutely. So, on the subject of time, um, if people listening are uh, wanting some more uh, very nerdy information about fertility and time, uh, my colleague and very good friend Fiona Willer, who is um, host of the Unpacking Weight Science podcast did a fantastic episode called Fertility is Not a Time Machine, which looked, which really, really unpacked all the research Mm. around fertility and and, and really exposed all the flaws in fertility research, which really has driven the inequitable um, uh, people, people across body sizes and genders, the inequitable access that people have to uh, fertility treatment, uh, particularly age-related um, so, mm. yeah, I just wanted to point people to that episode of Fiona yeah, it's great unpacking. Podcast. It's great unpacking uh, weight science. It's just like completely nerd out. Um, grab your favorite beverage and and sidle on up because it's a good one. <laughs> mm. So uh, we don't need to get all nerdy today. You can move over to that podcast <laughs> and do all that stuff. Go check
1: that one out. I guess yeah. go
0: check that one out. Take a take a bit of a break. Um, so, Nicola, I'm so curious to to get. You know, to kind of get practical here for a moment, and, um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what, what are the things that you most wish that dietitians, well, okay, let's just start with, you know, kind of my profession, dietitians. What do you, what do you most wish that dietitians knew about working effectively with women, um, with people? Actually, let's, let's just, let's just go back a second here because I just kind of, um, I just, made a blunder with my language, right? So mm. rather than saying, you know, women who are looking for fertility, um, you know, we might say people, because yes. um folks from the trans communities, um, LGBTQI communities, um, people who don't relate to mm-hmm. to being male or female, neither of those binaries. So um there you go, there's a good example of tripping over one's language and how we can kind of just press pause mm-hmm. and just go, whoops, go back. All right. So, my question for you <laughs> is um what would you most wish that dietitians knew about people who were presenting for dietetic care, um who were looking for I guess um support and advice around fertility. Um what did you what do you most wish people knew about people, especially though especially people in larger bodies?
1: Mm, I think the thing that I wished most that they knew was around the mental and emotional aspect of it as well, because while supporting our health in terms of, you know, all our health promoting behaviors is amazing and so, so important for the people who are in bigger bodies and want to get pregnant. They have been told pretty much their whole lives that they are not worthy of becoming parents but it's their fault that they can't get pregnant. They have so much wrapped up in terms of like the, they believe that their body is not capable of pregnancy. And we know that kind of when you have anxiety around these thoughts and that believing these beliefs impacts the way that you see the world, the way that you look after your body Um it will increase inflammation chronic inflammation in your body you know that we know that like bias does that but we also know that like when people are feeling really anxious or depressed like this is going to increase um, inflammation in their body and you know make their health outcomes poorer because of the way that they are seeing themselves the way that they are experiencing their life and the way that they are experiencing their body um so while all the physical stuff is amazing we need to do it holistically we need to be supporting these people and making sure that we are supporting their mental and emotional health as well as their physical health because both of those pieces are so important um especially when you're in a bigger body because if you believe that your body is not capable of getting pregnant it's not going to matter what you're doing in terms of like how you're feeding yourself and how you're looking after yourself there is an essential piece missing you know like if you wholeheartedly believes that you're going to do everything within your power to sabotage your efforts because you believe that your body is not capable so helping people look at those beliefs helping people see where those beliefs came from and how they are impacting how they are looking after themselves and how they're showing up in the world and how they are supporting themselves and how they are getting support from other people from relationships from friends family colleagues um is a really big part of the puzzle and i think you know all our healthcare should be from this holistic framework of looking at it from all angles.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, for sure. I couldn't agree with you more there. I wonder Nicola, if you don't mind speaking to this very common scenario, which happens to dietitians where, um, uh, a person in a larger body comes along with, you know, let's just think about that same scenario. They're looking to get pregnant. Um, and And they have come to the dietitian for weight loss, because mm. this is what they have been told so um, let 's just pretend this person knows nothing about fat positivity, knows nothing about health at every size. they have come with the explicit wish, I guess um, because that is has been very absorbed um, from mm. from maybe perhaps years of um, years of being a human being. So what, how do you think is a good way to kind of start that conversation? Because I think a lot of dietitians, we have a bit of trouble with that conversation, especially if it's the first time because it's not always received with, Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the, the, um, the responses can vary enormously. Um, and although it is not our job to control the response, we don't want to harm. We want to be really thoughtful about that, maybe that very first conversation. So I guess I would love to hear from you being a real expert in this area. How would you say we can be just really thoughtful with that first step?
1: I think the first thing that would be really helpful to explore with them is their motivation behind weight loss, because the problem with this field is that some people are told they have to pursue weight loss in order to access healthcare so in the uk for example we have the nhs which is NHS, nhs which is a free at point healthcare system but in order to access the fertility treatment you need to have a bmi below 30 and for some people what yeah <laughs> yeah oh so in for some oh people they've got a choice they can choose to get their bmi below 30 and access the free fertility support or they can keep trying naturally or they can find private, but some people don't have the financial option. to. Of course. To um, this is even for people who it's a male factor problem. So the the person who will be carrying the child is just in a bigger body, but everything else checks out healthcare wise. They have a male factor problem. They cannot access fertility support until their BMI is below 30. Even oh my gosh. Matter. like? It's crazy and it's I mean, although it may be different, it's different in other countries. Like I know a lot of clinics do have fertility barriers. So by investigating the motivation behind their weight loss, you will be able to help them better identify is this just because you've been told that losing weight is healthy and it's gonna have give you a better pregnancy or a healthier child, or you know, like because we are told these stories, like this is the things that we are being told time and time again that if you um, are in a bigger body when you conceive that you're going to have problems in, in pregnancy, that you're going to have a child that's going to have health problems. And nobody wants that. No one wants to go through a, a, a pregnancy with issues and complications. Nobody wants to be affecting the child, their health of their child. So by delving into the motivations that they have for weight loss, you can better understand like where they're coming from, what fears they have around it. You can then, you know, be able to reassure them that actually the evidence behind you know all the increased complications in pregnancy in bigger bodies is actually you know you can it's actually less than we're reported it's very sensationalized those things but also a lot of those risks can be down to weight stigma in the way that people in bigger bodies are treated throughout pregnancy um and it goes for the, the same for the health of the child you know a lot of the determinants of health aren't based on you know food and you know people's bodies it's a lot like tiny amount of genetics like loads of it's environmental so it's it's about really reframing that for them and helping them discover like really why they want to lose weight and and what you know what other components are really playing into those to those desires to lose weight and i think for people who maybe do need to lose that weight in order to access that medical funding we need to show a lot of compassion around that because it's it's really understandable that people these may want to continue to lose weight and to continue to follow down that road, Um but I think for us it's about really making sure that they are going into it if that's the ch- the path that they choose because it's their body completely body autonomy there, and um, but they go in knowing full well of all the benefits and risks to what they're going to be doing. So the fact that it's going to be short term that they're going to put the weight back on again and that they are increased risks of. um getting an eating disorder you know and just making it yeah, really so clear, yeah. the benefits and the risks of what they're going to be doing to themselves so that they can make a fully informed decision um around you know is short-term intentional weight loss what they're going to have to do in order to access their family because for some people that is the two choices that they're they dealt with which is a really hard position to be in when you know that weight loss is going to have a really negative impact on their health
0: yeah absolutely yeah you're you're a hundred percent correct and i think it's um you know fully informed choice is not something that many people do experience in the healthcare sector especially folks in larger bodies um you know consent is just so underdone across all i mean it across generally but especially folks who have experienced repeated stigma you know it's the the kind of enactment of power structures is is even made worse you know through repeated non-consensual um, interventions I guess mm-hmm. um, you know even things like weighing. You
1: know, it, oh my gosh! Yeah. You
0: know, so I, I think it's. Um. I, th- I really like your point around just making sure that we're offering fully informed, um, healthcare opportunities, so that people really do understand. And and I think the other thing to mention is that, of course, even when somebody is fully informed, we can't kind of mitigate or remove our lived experience. You know so that even, um, you know, in, in situations, uh, let's take this exact, you know, example that, um, for folks who are really, really wanting to start a family and this feels like this is the only way that this is going to happen, that of course it makes sense that we're going to take quite a number of risks, really, it, even, even risks that don't, so sound good at all really or you know there there are uh you know i've had plenty of clients in this particular situation who have a history of an eating disorder dreadful eating disorders and yet they're essentially kind of being demanded of that they that, that they pull their eating disorder up from the grave again and start enacting those exact behaviors that made them so unwell and it makes me really fucking angry if i'm honest oh,
1: yeah
0: you know um yeah so anyway (laughs) i I, I can't go without a podcast without a good like
1: (laughs) it just makes my blood boil because like you can tell you know i ask people sometimes if they feel comfortable to share their eating disorder histories with their you know gynecologist and their reproductive endocrinologist and they're like oh okay they make a note of it on the form and then they can still continue (sighs) to recommend this weight loss and you know sometimes very high calorie you know very low calorie weight intervention and i'm just like oh my gosh this is just the Uh, yeah there are no words
0: Mm, yeah so it's not just um folks in larger bodies who have never had eating disorders who've got you know who've been just ensconced like thoroughly Mm. in you know into diet culture from young ages or even from you know adolescence or whatever it's people who actually have clinical eating disorder histories Mm. i i it's very scary. It's very scary. So, so um, I guess with that in mind, that would be a situation where it, I mean, I'm just going to put myself out there and say it is compulsory for us to advocate. If you are working with somebody, it's not even a like, uh, it's we must, we must, must, must. Um, If you have uh, somebody who you're working with in a larger body with an eating disorder history, like it's kind of, that's not only, good practice it's ethical practice and it's compulsory we have to be we have to advocate Uh, uh, Mm. i know i'm being very black and white i'm not a black and white person but sometimes we just need to kind of draw that line and say this is a situation we have to act
1: i think unless you've got a very good reason not to advocate i think it's it should be kind of part and parcel of our practice Mm -hmm. for all our clients and especially because people in bigger bodies who may not have eating disorder backgrounds may still have suffered from eating disorders, but are so much less likely to be acknowledged or maybe they haven't been, you know, because we know that people in bigger bodies don't get those um labels in the same way that people in smaller bodies do.
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. The questions aren't being asked, are they?
1: No. And people just assume that, you know, if, if you have say for example binge eating disorder in a bigger body then you're just greedy or lazy or and that's the story that you make up about yourself as well that this is this is not an eating disorder this is just me being a horrible person which mm. obviously isn't. <laughs> Yeah,
0: absolutely. And just, and just a, a, a kind reminder to everybody listening that, of course, all eating disorders can happen in people in all bodies, including mm-hmm. anorexia, nervosa. Um, it's very common in folks in larger bodies. Mm. So let's just, I, uh, I really detest the label, quote unquote, atypical anorexia, oh, nervosa. I just, yeah. I just makes my blood boil. Um, so let's just, you know, just really let that land that all eating disorders can happen in, in all bodies and that um, particularly folks who have complex mental health histories that um, need very, very specific and, and very special care. Mm. So, um, oh, my goodness, I'm feeling all like, whew,
1: riled up. Riled up, <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's
0: a good feeling. I quite like it. It's a good time for an Instagram post. <laughs> Get it on it's good. I know, right? Get it while the energy's up. It's awesome. <laughs> um, Nicola, it's, you know, it has been such a treat to to speak with you you're such a a gift to the world you really are i know that you make a huge difference not only to individuals who are looking for fat positive fertility um you know coaching but also to us health professionals we just really appreciate you because it's hard to kind of do all this stuff on our own and so we we just really appreciate and we appreciate your lived experience and um and your wisdom and generosity you're amazing thank you thank you so, um, just to round us off, um, tell us all about your book, your website, your services, like just tell us everything.
1: <laughs> so my website is nicolassalmon.co.uk. Um, I am on Instagram a lot, too much, possibly. <laughs> is that a thing? <laughs> <My hand? laughs> I don't know. <laughs> not now. Um, <laughs> so my handle is fat positive fertility. Um, I, Um, on there pretty much all the time I'm so happy to answer any questions on there and um, I have written a self-published a book which was released last year called fat and fertile which is kind of a mixture of my lived experience my story um, some coaching techniques for people and some research so it's kind of like a bit of a mixed bag of all the stuff that I could put together to support people through this. And um, so I offer one-to-one coaching at the moment. I'm doing some group coaching right now with COVID-19 going on um, just to give people um, who aren't maybe in a financially stable position some access to some support. And I have a network for healthcare professionals who might want some support, might need some support um, with their own clients. Um, And all that, that stuff is on my website. So if you want any more information, please do feel free to reach out or email me. I am so happy to help however I can.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. As I said, you're a huge, huge gift to the world. <laughs> and we're just so grateful to you, Nicola. Thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. And I, I hope that, um, you know, lots of people have an opportunity to, to listen to this and, and to learn from you because it's, um, you know, this is, this is something that, that, uh, you know, most dietitians will come across um, and to be working alongside folks who are who are looking for fertility support in larger bodies and um, and what you offer is just absolutely um, critical to us to be being, being able to do that really, really well and through um, an ethical and inclusive lens. so I really appreciate you so much.
1: Thank you,
0: and I will talk to you soon, hopefully <laughs> Bye, bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.